series, Ancestry.Divine, and today we are moving forward uh, into John chapter 18, verses 38 through chapter 19, verse 15, uh, by looking at the trial of our Lord uh, before Pilate. So let's read that together. John 18, 38. These are the words of the living God. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to... authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in the Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he he delivered him over to them, to be crucified. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together again in your presence and hear a word from you. We pray that you would speak to us today. This is a rather dark passage. Uh, Bring us into it and help us to see all of the implications of it for our lives today. Bless us in our discussion. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open our ears and our eyes so that we would behold Jesus, the man and the king, 
that we would see him and that we would hear him speaking to us today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever seen a counterfeit bill or coin? If you've ever seen a a counterfeit bill or coin before, you can usually recognize it, but not always. Uh, You must have your senses trained to know the rec- uh, to be able to recognize the difference between a true bill and a false one. If you are somebody who has handled lots of money, the moment that somebody puts a counterfeit bill into your hand, you will be able to feel the difference. Or if you are somebody who collects coins, the moment somebody puts a fake coin in front of you, you will be able to tell that it is a fake. The way that we know the difference between the true and the counterfeit is by comparing the counterfeit to the true. In our passage today, we're presented with Jesus, the true man and the true king. But friends, sadly enough, oftentimes, because of our sin, because of our hypocrisy and rebellion, we fail to recognize that or we just forget about it altogether. So today, we're going to meditate on two things that will help us with that. Two things today. Number one, Since Jesus is the true man, we must live like we are truly men. And I'm using men in a generic sense, refer to mankind. So we must live like we are truly men and women. Since Jesus is the true man, we must live like we are truly men and women. Number two, since Jesus is the true king, we must live like he is truly king. So we see that first point, since Jesus is the true man, we must live like we are truly men and women in verses 18.38 through 19.6a. That's the first part of verse 6. So um, we will read that now. Let's go back and start at the beginning, 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands." Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So read all the way through. So since our last meeting, uh, Jesus has been led away and and put on trial. He is first led before uh, Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest, uh, for sort of an initial hearing. And then afterwards, he is led to Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year, where he is accused of blasphemy. And then they take him from there to Pilate, uh, where he is further accused of sedition and to making himself uh, out to be a king. You see, the religious leaders had to think of some way, they had to think of a valid reason to put Jesus into conflict with the political leaders of the day. So they said he makes himself out to be 
a king, which would put him in direct conflict with those political leaders. And that is why Pilate is now examining him. Now, it is pretty obvious from the beginning of our text, uh, from the very beginning, and especially our text, that Pilate thought Jesus was innocent. As a matter of fact, he says three times in our text, I don't know if you picked up on that, that I find no guilt in him. He says it three times. So what happens? Why does he end up crucifying him? Why does he end up agreeing to have him crucified? Uh, look at 38 and 40 again. Uh, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So apparently there was a custom that was worked out between uh, the Jews and the Romans where they would release one man uh, during the time of Passover. And again, Pilate thinks that Jesus is innocent. So he gives them a choice between Jesus and this man Barabbas. Now Barabbas was something of a terrorist in his day. Uh, The gospel writers refer to him as a murderer, as an insurrectionist, um, and as a robber. And a robber is uh, essentially a bandit. It's like what we would call a highway gunman uh, today. They were outlaws. Um, they were essentially thugs, right? And so Pilate gives them a choice between Jesus and this man Barabbas, who is a terrorist, and they choose the terrorist. <laughs> so, so here they have a man who's actually innocent, right? And they can, they can let him go, but they choose this man Barabbas instead, They choose the murderer and the insurrectionist. So this is a wicked, wicked injustice that is taking place here. Look at uh, verse 1 of 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. It seems that uh, Pilate flogged Jesus here in this instance in an attempt uh, to appease the Jews. He figures, if I just beat him a little bit, maybe they will... uh, this is maybe what he's thinking, that if he just beats them, they will let it go and stop trying to have him put to death because, again, he thinks he is innocent. Afterward, he is flogged and he is mocked. Uh, the soldiers make a crown out of thorns with long spikes that would have penetrated deep into his scalp and they shove it down on his head. And then they array him in this purple robe, which is a royal color. It is kingly. Um, and in Matthew's gospel, it says that they put a reed in his hand. So here they dress him up like a king, but in their eyes, he is not really a true king. And so they dress him in this ridiculous outfit, and then they proceed to, um, to bow down before him. They kneel before him, and they, they say, Hail the king of the Jews, before they punch him in the face and spit on him. In verse 4, Pilate brings him out again, and this time when they see uh, Jesus, uh, he is dressed in this ridiculous outfit, all beaten and bloodied. He actually brings 
him out and presents him to the people like that. He's probably hoping that they will see what he has done and maybe back off a little bit, calling for this death penalty. Again, he says, I find no guilt in him. And then he says, behold the man. Um, and it's possible that he was, he's saying something like, look at, look at him. He's claiming to be king. Look at what I have done to him. Behold the man. This is the guy who claims to be king. He's pitiful. Um, and there's great irony here in the words of Pilate when he says, behold the man. Pilate is unwittingly saying some things about the man, the man, uh, and he does not know it yet anyway. Uh, he will. Jesus is the perfect man, the ideal man. He is the innocent man. He is the man that God created every one of us to be. He is everything that we were ever supposed to be. And here he is being put on trial, uh, and he's an innocent man. And they're guilty, and they're treating him like he is the worst scum of all the earth. Uh, here is the promises that the Jews have been waiting for. He's, he's everything that they have been looking forward to, standing right in front of them, and they say, crucify him, crucify him. All right? Friends, in this text, we see that Jesus was the victim of a true injustice. He was an innocent man. As a matter of fact, he's the only one of us of whom it can ever truly be said that he was innocent. And this story of an innocent, being, uh, innocent man being condemned and the guilty going free continues to crop up again and again throughout human history. This is just what we do in our sin, we want to try to fix all of our problems by blaming them on someone else and something else, right? We want to fix our problems by blaming someone else. And there's a lot of talk today in our culture about victims. We are living in a day in which everybody is a victim. We live in a victim culture. And as soon as things are not going our way, we're quick to point the finger at somebody else and play the victims, right? We're all victims of some sort of great injustice. And friends, let me tell you, every time we do this, we play the victim when we are not, the guilty go free and the innocent are condemned. This whole race war that is going on in America today is evidence of this very thing. According to our culture, the problem is with the skin color that we are born with. Depending on what color skin you are born with, that is going to determine whether you have certain privileges or if you don't have certain privileges. And according to this theory, um, there is a system set up that perpetuates this privileges for certain individuals and takes it away from others. It's inherent in the system. So in this line of thinking, whole groups of people get condemned. Track with that? Whole groups of people get condemned, and the blame is laid at the feet of this faceless, nameless system that is being run by said people. And what is the solution to this problem? According to this theory, everybody born with one skin color is guilty, while everybody born with any other skin color is innocent. And so you condemn an entire group of people for the sins of some, and then the others go free. And again, the guilty go free while the innocent 
are punished. It is inevitable. It is always this way. And why is that? Well, unless you have a truly innocent victim, like we have here today presented before us in our passage, who can actually do something with your sins and who can actually do something about the injustices that we see out there in the world, you are stuck in this perpetual blame machine that you can never get out of. You see, friends, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ settles the score. On the cross, the only one who was ever truly innocent died for the sins of those who are truly guilty. And with his death, He took away the sins of those who are truly guilty so that we all stand before God at the foot of the cross on equal footing. We all stand before God, friends, guilty as charged. It doesn't matter whether you are black, white, Latino, Asian, or whatever, guilty as charged. And through the blood of the cross, we've all been declared innocent. We've been acquitted of all charges, We all go free in Jesus. And the only one true victim in all of this is Jesus. He is the true victim. So you see, all of the systems, all of the blame, all of the excuses, all of the privileges cannot fix our problems. We need the blood of Christ. We need the blood of the cross. We need a Savior who can actually save. And we need an innocent victim who can actually forgive, or else you just perpetuate the hostility. So, how do we go about it? Well, we must point people to Jesus. We must hold out Jesus before people, as Pilate did here, and say, Behold the man. Behold the man. And how do we do it? Well, it's simple. We just live faithful lives. And you say, that sounds really simple. Well, is it? Friends, let me tell you something. For a long time, the church has not been saying, Behold the man. It has been saying, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us the terrorists. And how, you say? Well, friends, every time we choose our sin instead of obedience to Jesus Christ, we are, in effect, exchanging Jesus for Barabbas. If we do not uphold what is right and true and just as a church... Listen, we let a terrorist go in his place. If we do not uphold what is right and true and just as a church, we let a terrorist go in his place. The world mocks him and sin runs rampant in our society. Let me explain. The church is supposed to have a restraining effect in the world. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by upholding truth in the world. But when we do not Evil is set free and the righteous are oppressed. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said this a while back. As goes the church, so goes the world. As goes the church, so goes the world. The church is setting a precedent in society and the world is going to follow after it. The kingdom of God is center stage in human history and everything else revolves around it. And so if the church is not upholding Righteousness, if the church is not upholding truth, the culture around it goes down the tubes. And it's obvious that that's what is happening today. All you have to do is look around, okay? So what do we do about it? 
Again, I will give you a simple example of something that you can do. Just don't be a hypocrite. Just don't be a hypocrite. Live a Christian life wherever you go. This Sunday morning Christian mentality that we have had in the church for years has had damning effects on the church of Jesus Christ in the world. The the world is looking at the church to see what a Christian should look like. And when it looks in and it sees us saying one thing and doing another, it sees two things. Number one, the church or Christianity is a farce. And number two, it's okay for them to go and do the same thing. Because again, we're setting a precedent, whether we realize it or not. Sunday to Sunday, we must model what it looks like to uphold righteousness and believe truth. Because every time we say that we believe truth and we act contrary to it, we are telling the world a lie about Christianity. For years, the church has been serving, and and for that reason, the, the world thinks this is what Christianity is. It thinks it's this lie that we've been presenting to it. You know, for years, Christians have been serving up this hypocritical form of Christianity uh, to the world so that it thinks that that's what it actually is. And friends, let me tell you something. Every time we do this, we are no better than the soldiers who dressed Jesus up in this ridiculous costume and mocked him. So, we must be Christians Sunday to Sunday. We can't only be Christians on Sunday morning and then play the hypocrite for the rest of the week. So that's one Simple thing that we all can do. And believe me, I'm right there with you. Just don't be a hypocrite. We must have integrity as Christians. So we've seen that since Jesus is the true man, we must live like we are truly men and women. We see the second point, because Jesus is the true king, we must live like he is truly king. We see that in 6b through 16, but let's read uh, 6b through 11. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, excuse me, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So when the Jews realize that their first accusation against Christ has gone by the wayside, they offer another. They're now at their wit's end, and they charge him here with a religious crime before Pilate. Remember, before it was a political one. Now it's a religious one. And Pilate says, you crucify him. I find no guilt in him, knowing good well that they, good and well that they couldn't do it. Again, Pilate is ready to let Christ go. They say, but he makes himself out to be the son of God. And this alarmed Pilate. He makes himself out to be the son of God And Pilate was greatly troubled by that. The text says he was even more afraid than he had been before. Why? Here you have this man who, on all accounts, seems innocent in your eyes. Uh, He is not out of his mind. He is not screaming and yelling. He is subdued. He is taking 
the beating, and for all intents and purposes, this whole trial is a sham, right? And let's not forget about the fact that uh, Jesus had been going around the region where Pilate was a governor and performing miracles and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. So the chances that Pilate had not heard about Jesus and some of the things that he had done are slim to none. Also, Pilate's wife had sent him word about a dream that she had about this man, Jesus, that troubled her greatly, and she said that he was to have nothing to do with that righteous man. And finally, let's not forget that Pilate was a good pagan, so he would have believed that the gods do come down to earth in the form of men sometimes. So Pilate is now wondering who he has standing before him. He hears he's a son of God. Did one of the gods come down to earth and uh, stand before him here today in this trial? Has he been beating a god? Is he about to come under the judgment for what he has done? So he inquires a little bit further. He says, where are you from? (laughs) Where are you from? That is, who, who are you really? What are you? I think Pilate here wants to know uh, if Jesus came down from heaven. I mean, we can't know for certain, but he's like, where are you from? You know, here's as the Son of God, all these things considered. Uh, he's wondering if the lightning bolt is about to come out of the sky and strike him on the forehead for the things that he has been doing. And so he takes Jesus private, privately and he asks him about this. But Jesus is done talking to this man, Okay. Uh, don't forget that uh, Jesus has already had an interaction with Pilate prior to this where Jesus basically tells him that he is the king and that his kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate had heard and seen enough. Jesus is done talking. He is now submitting to the death that he and the Father planned that he uh, would die from the very beginning. Remember in our first sermon in this series, we said that in eternity past, the Father and the Son determined that the Son would one day come and die for the sins of the world. And that is what Jesus is essentially saying here. Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? And Jesus says, the only authority you have over me comes from above. The only reason you have any authority at all is because God gave it to you. The only reason Pilate is a governor in Rome during the first century is because God made him one. God put him before Jesus that day for this trial. So this is to say that uh, true and real authority in the world is God-given. It comes from God. More on that in a minute. Look at verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Uh, Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Well, once again, the Jews realize that their accusation has went by the wayside, and so they jump the shark again, and they go back to their their first accusation that they had made against Jesus. You see, Pilate sought to release him from then on. That's what our text tells us. He he wanted to let him go. That's what he's trying to do. But they wouldn't let it go. So this time they turn the tables on Pilate. They say, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. That is, if you have a man 
in Caesar's jurisdiction who claims that he is king, uh, uh, your authority or your allegiance to Caesar goes right out the window. If Pilate's going to be loyal to Caesar, he cannot let another man go who claims to be king. There can be only one king. You see? So they put him in a bind. Pilate is, as we say, on the horns of a dilemma here. Uh, And even the Jews recognize that there can be only one king. God was to be their king. And uh, here he has sent them, the Messiah, to be their king and their deliverer. And they say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. It's interesting. The Jews don't even like the Romans, but their insatiable greed for money and power causes them to reject God and to put a wicked man in his place. Here they're being given one last opportunity to do it God's way. Remember before, Pilate had unwittingly said, behold the man, right? Uh, That is, here's the one that you've been waiting for. There he is. He's the one that reconciles everything in heaven and earth. And what did they say? Crucify him. Crucify him. And here he holds out before them their king. He says, behold your king. That is, he is the sovereign over all. He is the one who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And he is unwittingly saying this. He's unwittingly holding out Jesus before them and saying, behold your king. Will you have your king? And they say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Are there ways in which we continue to do this very same thing today within the church? Do we take the authorities that God has placed over us in our lives and put in their place other things? Uh, It doesn't matter who you are. You have authority over your life. And most likely, some of those authorities are God-given and some of them are not. So let's examine that. What are some of the ways in which we still create our own authorities today? Because that is essentially what the Jews have done here in our passage. They have made Caesar their authority and not God. So what are some of the ways in which we're still creating our own authorities today? What about some of these ungodly and unrealistic views that we have of women in our society today? Um, Our society has taken these women and propped them up uh, these these runway models and prop them up on billboards and and on signs and in magazines and in movies and everywhere that we look and Hollywood has taken these women and exalted them on a pedestal and what happens if we're not careful is we take those women and we make them into the ideal woman that is the standard for a woman and that is why you have all of these young girls who are anorexic and bulimic because they think they're not measuring up. They look at that girl on the billboard and they say, well, I'm not living up to that. That is what beauty is supposed to look like and so they starve themselves. Right? It's an ungodly and unrealistic ideal. Do you understand what I'm driving at here? Hollywood does not define beauty. God does. Because God is the authority over our lives. Right? So, God tells us what is true 
God tells us what is good. God tells us what is beautiful. So what is what does God say a true woman looks like? What does God say a good woman looks like? What does God say a beautiful woman looks like? Well, she is a woman who's created in the image of God. All women are created in the image of God. They have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Uh, she, she loves her God. She respects her husband if she has one. She seeks to nurture her children in, uh, in the Lord. Uh, she's a faithful church woman. She shows up on Sunday. She stands on the Word of God. We can open up the Bible and we can find all sorts of other things that we can add to the list. What does the Bible say about a woman? What does the Bible say um, a beautiful... What, is a, what does the Bible say a woman's appearance is supposed to be like? What does it say her demeanor is supposed to be like? That is to be our standard, not some, some Broadway runway model or something like that. The Bible is to be our standard. And we could say this for men too. What is a man? You know, is it this, um, is it this uh, fancy boy that we see today with the, you know, the short capri pants and, and no socks? He's real pretty and smooth like a woman. Or is it the other view of a man that our society used to have? He's a real tough guy. You know, he's machismo. He never cries. Uh, he looks like a lumberjack. You know, is that, is that what a man is, right? We have to ask ourselves, what is a man? And what does the Bible say a man is? Well, he's, does, does he love the Lord his God with all of his heart? Uh, is he faithful? Is he a faithful churchman? Does he try to protect and provide for his family? Does he seek to honor God in all that he does? We have to look to the Bible to get a standard and a definition of what a man is. We can't look to the culture. The culture's view is constantly changing, and it's an unrealistic, ungodly ideal that we could never measure up to. I'll tell you another way in which we do this regularly, and we all do it, this sort of authority swap that we've been talking about. We create... Um, unrealistic and ungodly expectations for people in our lives. We create them, right? We create certain expectations in our own mind for them to live up to. And when these people don't live up to those expectations that we have created for them, we look down on them and we start to get mad at them. Or we'll create an expectation for something in our lives, something, whatever it is, and it doesn't deliver in the way that we had hoped it to, and then we become disappointed and downcast. <clears throat> Every time we do this, when we create these unbiblical and ungodly ideals and expectations for people and things in our lives, we are in effect swapping Jesus for Caesar. We are in effect swapping Jesus for Caesar. We make up our own rules and our own authorities for other people to abide by, and this is dangerous. Every time we create our own rules and our own authorities, Caesar is ruling over us and not Jesus. That is, we are seeking to put a man in the place of God, or we are seeking to put ourselves into the place of God, which we are not to do, friends. So what must we do? Excuse me. We must make sure that Jesus is the only authority over us. We must not go looking in any other places 
for a king, right? We look to his law word alone for a standard and for an ideal as, uh, as an authority over our lives. And we look no other place. So in closing, we have seen that the people were presented with a true man and a true king. He is the one that they were looking for all along. He was the one that was going to grant them the true freedom and deliverance that they had been looking for, and yet they rejected him in their sin and put in his place wicked and evil men. They first did this with Barabbas, and then they did it with Caesar. And friends, we must be careful not to do the same. We have a tendency to look into other places for answers to our problems. We have a tendency to create our own authorities, our own standards, our own ideals to live up to. Jesus, friends, is the true man, and he is the true king. So let us not look for answers in the world, in the system, or in men, but let us look to Jesus and behold the one who is truly man, and